Greetings, everyone. <clears throat> I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those uh, joining us from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome those who are joining us online. Uh, we are back in the book of Revelation, and our plan is to work our way through this book. Last weekend, we completed the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, which were primarily Jesus' message to the seven churches. We are going to get now into some of the most complex, difficult-to-interpret passages in the entire Bible. And no wonder most people don't read the book of Revelation, and even if some read, they find it difficult to understand its message. Now, I want to remind you, the word revelation simply means unveiling or bringing to the surface what is hidden. Now, the book is not just a revelation of end-time prophecies, but it is the revelation of a person, the Lord Jesus. And you see the full, spectacular identity of Jesus in the final book of the Bible. And in my view, Revelation is one of the most Christ-centered books in the New Testament. That is why if we make anything other than Jesus as the focus of this book, then our interpretation will be inevitably be skewed. Daryl Johnson, in his book titled Discipleship on the Edge, points out, Revelation is a down-to-earth manual on how to be a disciple facing the harsh realities of life on earth. So that's what the book of Revelation is. It's a down-to-earth manual on being better disciples of Jesus. The message of Revelation calls us to fix our eyes on an alternate reality. Uh, don't be obsessed by your circumstances, but look at everything through the lens of the hope that we have in Christ. And that will change dramatically how you view this world. Today we're going to look at two chapters. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Because these two chapters go hand in hand. They both offer us a vision of heaven. And this vision of heaven clarifies how we view things here on earth. So we're going to read... Uh, two sections of scripture, one portion taken from Revelation uh, chapter 4 and another portion taken from Revelation chapter 5. And if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Here's Revelation 4, verses 1 to 6. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And here's Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us the book of Revelation. It is in your wisdom that you have given us this book so we can be better disciples of Jesus. I pray that even as we preach through this book, that it will impact our walk with you. It will inspire our hearts with hope. And even though some of the passages in this book are difficult to understand, we pray that, Lord, you will be our teacher that you will help us to keep our eyes on the main thing and that we will be edified in our faith as we learn to see everything through this lens of the hope that we have in Christ. So come now and speak to us in the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, many books were written and movies were made about near-death experiences of people. And these people made claims that they visited heaven. It gained a lot of popularity and generated a whole lot of excitement even in Christian circles. One of those well-known books is, Heaven is for Real a little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. You know, that book became a, a number one New York Times bestseller with more than 11 million copies sold. Now, here's a quote from the back cover of the book. With disarming innocence and the plain-spoken boldness of a child, Colton recounts his visit to heaven, describing meeting long-departed family members, Jesus, the angels, how really, really big God is, and how much God loves us. Now, here's something I want you to know. Anytime anybody shares about their personal experiences of their trip to heaven, and they write books, and they speak in conferences, my general advice is to take what they are saying with a pinch of salt. Don't get carried away by these claims. And it's not because we are skeptical or we are denying the possibility of experiences like that. But here's the problem. There is no objective way to verify what they're saying other than their personal experience. 
Especially when they are offering to us information that's not in the Bible. They are adding to the written word of God. And that can become easily dangerous and sometimes even misleading. Now, the reason behind the popularity of these type of books is the desire within the human heart to know what heaven is like. Now, I have good news for you. Today, I'm going to share with you what heaven is like. And not because I made a personal trip to heaven, but I can share with you on the basis of God's authoritative word what heaven is like. What we see in the text we read is the Apostle John says the door to heaven was wide open and he heard a voice saying to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately John is ushered into heaven and he comes before the presence of God and he shares with us about his trip. Oh, because we are covering two chapters. I can't go into all of the details in the text, but I'm going to focus on key themes that are pertinent to these two chapters. Revelation chapter 4 is a, a description of the throne room of God, and this is a breathtaking vision. Now, I want you to keep in mind the Apostle John's circumstances. John was on exile, lonely, in the island of Patmos. The brutal Roman emperor Domitian was on the throne. The early church was discouraged as they faced one wave of persecution after another. And their struggling little movement reeled under the relentless onslaughts of violence and martyrdom as their way of life confronted with the majority culture of the time. Now, Christians refused to participate in the Roman emperor worship, which made them atheists in the eyes of the Roman government. They were seen as political traitors who gave their allegiance to a different king. So that was the reason for severe persecution. And the early church faced a major dilemma. Now they struggled to reconcile their suffering with the victory that Jesus has won on their behalf. How do you correspond these two things? They were perplexed. And what can they do in light of a powerful Roman empire that has issued an edict to banish Christians from the face of the earth? Where is God in light of what we are experiencing right now? So those were the pressing questions in their mind. And it is in response to this that the vision of John makes so much sense. That vision offers all the answers that the early church needed. Where is God in the midst of all this chaos? God is seated on the throne. That is the main message of Revelation 4. The word throne occurs 40 times in the book of Revelation, 17 times here in chapters 4 and 5. God is in charge. He has all authority and he is seated on the throne. Throne 
is a symbol of authority. The throne of the universe is occupied. Now for the early church, they thought the Roman emperor is seated on the throne. Caesar was on the throne. He was making their life difficult. He was hunting them down like animals. Chaos and death abounded. And it seemed like God's gone on a vacation. And this vision from John was a reminder to the early church. It's not Caesar who is on the throne. God is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is in control. God is not frantic, running around, not knowing what to do. He is calm and he is seated. He has not lost his authority. That's what the early church needed to hear at the time. I believe that's a message we need to hear today. For you ask people in our day and age, are you optimistic about the future? I bet most people you talk to would say, no. In light of what is going on in the world today, in light of what we are watching on the news on a regular basis, there's wars, there's disease, disasters. What is there to be optimistic about? Not so if you're a Christian. Because our God is still seated on the throne. And in a world of uncertainties, the reality that God is in charge stabilizes everything. So that's the vision John receives, this vision, this grand vision of God seated on the throne. Now the language that John uses here to describe God shows he is dazzling in beauty, beyond description. No words can capture the appearance of God. John uses poetic, artistic language. He uses all kinds of visual imageries to describe the throne, the one who is seating on the throne, and all the things surrounding the throne. Now, I want you to imagine if someone from the 16th century were to get a glimpse of the smartphone that we use today. What do you think they'll have to say about it? Do you think they'll understand the function of this device? Will they be able to explain what it is with their limited understanding by just taking a peek at this? That this device is the first thing that we wake up to and the last thing that we put down before we end our day? That we talk to it and it talks back to us? That it can sing songs and play music? We can even make words appear on the screen of this device. It can capture pictures of people. You know, a person from the 16th century will be lost for words to describe what this device is about. If that is true of a, a little human manufactured device, imagine describing God. And all John says his, the throne of heaven has an occupant who's beyond description. John simply sees beautiful colors that he associates with precious jewels of his time. 
Look at the text in Revelation 4, verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald, encircled the throne. Isn't it fascinating that there's a, a rainbow encircling the throne of God? Unfortunately, when we hear the word rainbow, we know how the meaning has been hijacked. It's taken a wrong meaning. That a rainbow flag today represents internationally the LGBTQ plus community. But that's because the original imagery has been distorted. Right? That's not what the rainbow means in the Bible. A rainbow is a, a sign of a covenant between God and human beings that God gave after the great flood during Noah's time. And in the biblical narrative, the rainbow serves as a symbol of God's covenant promise that he would never again destroy the earth through a flood. It represents a pledge from God of his mercy, grace, and faithfulness that he extends to us. So that's why you see this rainbow over the throne room of God. It means that even though the one who is seated on the throne is indescribable, he is extending an invitation for humanity to approach the throne. The one who's seated on the throne wants to have a relationship with us. So he's beckoning us, he's calling us, inviting us to come before his presence and stand before his throne. So that's what the rainbow signified. Now I want us to move to chapter 5. And what do we see in Revelation 5, verse 1? And I saw... In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So the one who is seated on the throne is the king of kings. He is the lord of the universe. He is the maker of heaven and earth. This is God Almighty. God's right hand is a symbol of his power and authority. And in his right hand, he held a, a scroll with seven seals on it. A scroll was made out of strips of papyrus that was glued together to form this lengthy strip that had to be rolled. And that was the most popular writing material in the ancient world. The fact that this scroll was sealed shows the importance of this document. The seven seals ensured that the scroll was kept closed and it was reserved for the rightful recipient to open. Now you may be wondering, what does this scroll stand for? Now there are varying interpretations to what this scroll signifies. But based on my study, I believe the scroll stands for the rest of the book of Revelation. It is God's redemptive plan which includes salvation and judgment. 
the contents of this scroll reveal how God will culminate his plan of salvation to bring his creation that has gone wayward once again in alignment with him. That's the message of this scroll, how God was going to accomplish that. Scrolls in those times were normally written on one side, but our text says this particular scroll is written on both sides to show the completeness of God's plan that nothing needs to be added to this. This is a comprehensive plan that God has to redeem the world. So a sovereign God holds the destiny of the world in his hands and God's ultimate plans and purposes can never be thwarted. So here we have this description about the scroll and then John faces a dilemma. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Now the reassuring thing is God has a, a foreordained plan for this entire universe. But here's the dilemma. Who is able to execute that plan? Who is worthy enough to walk up to the throne room of God and take this scroll from his right hand and open the seals? Now who is the rightful recipient of this scroll who has the power to put this plan into action? And John says there was a search and no one was found who was worthy of putting God's plan of redemption into effect. No one in the entire universe who had the wisdom and the capacity, the power and authority to establish the plan of God. And John weeps in response to that. The word used there for weep is a strong word it's usually used in the context of mourning over a loved one's death. John wept when he realized if the scroll remained unopened, we are left to ourselves, to our own mercies. Are we going to run this universe on our own without any overarching plans? Now into this gloomy scene, Jesus steps in. And I tell you, you will not find a higher Christology insights into the nature and the identity of Christ in the New Testament than these verses here in Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So when John was weeping, someone taps him on the shoulder and says, there is someone who is worthy to take the scroll from God's right hand and execute this plan. And Jesus steps in at that moment and he brightens everything up. 
For Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is also the messianic king in the lineage of David who has been promised in the Old Testament. So he is the root of David. And the text emphatically says the lion has overcome and he is worthy to open the scroll. So as John hears these words, he is expecting now to see a glorious roaring lion who has triumphed victoriously. And as John turns around, what does he see? You see one of the greatest paradoxes in the Bible. For the imagery shifts from this mighty, roaring, triumphant lion to one of the meekest of all of creation. Here's verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So as John turns around, he sees the lamb who will be the chief architect of God's plans for this world. There cannot be any other startling juxtaposition of imagery. The mighty lion, the triumphant lion wins by being slaughtered as a lamb. And if you notice, the little lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. The lamb may be outwardly meek in appearance and small in size, but the seven horns signify power. Seven is the number of completion. So it shows he is immensely strong. He is omnipotent. The seven eyes signify his ability to see that he is all-knowing, he is omniscient. The seven spirits of God are symbolic of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So the lamb is filled with God's Holy Spirit. So he is omnipotent, omniscient, he is filled with God's Holy Spirit. All of these are character qualities of Jesus. Now how does the lion of the tribe of Judah triumph? He triumphs not as a lion by pouncing and tearing his prey apart, but he triumphs as a lamb by allowing himself to be torn apart. And here comes probably the most important truth in this book. It is the central, pivotal truth of the entire Bible. The very center of history is the cross of Christ. The reason John presents the lion conquering as a lamb is in order to highlight the centrality of the cross. That it's on the cross the lion became a lamb that was slain. That the lamb was slaughtered on the cross of Calvary. Was offered as a sacrifice. And through his shed blood, he won the most decisive victory. If you have read C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, or even watched the movie, 
Aslan, the lion, represents Jesus. How did Aslan conquer? Aslan did not conquer as a lion. He had to lay helpless on a stone table and face the brunt of evil. And Aslan, the lion, is humiliated. He's mocked and jeered by the forces of darkness. His beautiful mane is shaved off, and he doesn't resist or fight his enemies back. Aslan, the lion, is brutally tortured and killed. And it's a graphic depiction of what our text is saying here, how the lion triumphed. One of the important theories of the atonement that the early church held on to was Christus Victor, Christ, the victorious one. For what seemed to be the defeat of Jesus turned out to be the greatest victory ever. When Satan contributed to Christ's death on the cross, it was his greatest tactical error, for he took part in his own defeat. For when Jesus died on the cross, it is through that act of sacrifice he stripped the principalities and powers and a decisive victory was won on our behalf for every single one of us. And what we see here in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is a crescendo of worship. For that is the fitting response of human beings to what God has done for us. In Revelation 4, there's a reference to 24 elders. Who are they? Look at this, Revelation 4 verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Who are the 24 elders? Well, when it comes to interpreting imageries in the book of Revelation, you can never be dogmatic because the text doesn't give us the answer. So we can only do our best to speculate as we arrive at a conclusion. Now, most scholars believe the 24 elders symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So 12 plus 12 equals 24. So that is another way of saying it is a symbolic reference to all believers of all times, all the redeemed people of God, encompassing both the Old and the New Testament age. So that's who the 24 elders are representing. It's representing all believers who have been redeemed by Jesus. Who are the four living creatures? This is what the text says in Revelation 4, 6, and 7. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Again, as you can imagine, there are many interpretations of what these four creatures are 
standing for, what they represent. Some see this as angelic beings of the highest order. But I concur with scholars who see this as a reference to all of creation. The lion represents wild animals. The ox represents domesticated animals. The man is a reference to all of humanity. An eagle is a reference to all the birds. So the four living creatures is another way of saying this is speaking about all creation. All creation, all of nature joining in worship. So what are the 24 elders and the four living creatures doing here in Revelation chapter 4 and 5? Now this is what they're doing in Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. All of creation. All of the redeemed join in a unified chorus of worship. And they declare their praise to the creator God who made all things. And who sustains all things. They declare in one accord, God is worthy of all of our praise and adoration. So in Revelation 4, the creator God is the center of worship. Do you know who is the center of worship in Revelation 5? Look at verses 8 to 10. And when he had taken it, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 4, the creator God is the center of worship. And you come to Revelation chapter 5, the lamb is the center of worship. This is how worship in heaven looks like. All People groups, all language groups, people of every culture who've been washed in the blood of Jesus join in one accord, in one chorus, exalting his glorious name. For it is because of Jesus' sacrifice, heaven has been populated with worshipers from every background. Heaven is a multi-ethnic community and by his blood, Jesus has made that possible. This is the song of heaven. A song that will echo all through eternity. This is what the worship service in heaven looks like. All believers proclaiming with passion, with conviction, the Lamb who redeemed us is worthy. 
Worthy is the Lamb, is the song of heaven. He alone deserves the praise for all that he has done for his people. And I want you to know something. Whenever we worship here on earth, we join the worship service that's already happening in heaven. You're tuning in. Tuning in to what's happening in, in much greater grandeur out there. And it is our closest foretaste of heaven, this side of eternity. And I think there's no better way to finish our service today than by joining with heaven in praising the Lord Jesus and declaring worthy is the Lamb. Are you ready to do that? Amen. Let's stand together. As our worship team leads us in a couple of closing songs, let's sing together. And remember, as you're singing, you're tuning in, tuning in to this grand service that's happening right now in heaven. So we are joining our voices with the voices of heaven. And that's what redefines the darkness, the brokenness, and the chaos that we see around us. Because it's the lens of worship, the lens of how everything will culminate through which we see the brokenness around us. And we have a radically different perspective as a result of that. It fills our heart with hope.